Hello, and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to Shape the System. And wherever you are, I've been saying good morning. I'm not saying good morning anymore because I don't know when you're listening to this, but hello and welcome. And we're going to be talking today about energy. And we've done a few interviews regarding energy, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about energy systems and specifically business and energy. And there's a whole bunch there that I don't know. So I'm going to ask a lot of stupid questions. Hopefully that's useful. But firstly, Gareth Evans, welcome to the show and tell us a bit about where you are. Not all of what you're working on because we're going to cover that later, but just get us in the zone and we're going to go straight into the problem space. Great to be here, Vincent. And I'll say good afternoon, good evening, coming out of San Diego, California. And yeah, it's not sunny today. It's a bit overcast, but hopefully we get the California sun back soon. In terms of background on myself, global citizen, grew up Liverpool, England and had the pleasure of living and working all over the world, supporting commercial industrial businesses around the world to develop major projects from mine sites to oil and gas facilities to nowadays renewable energy projects. And so I had the pleasure of living in Perth, close to, I suppose, where you are today and now in in San Diego. Super adventurous, love anything on two wheels, mountain bikes, motorbikes, have a great son and uh, yeah, building a startup, which keeps me more than busy. Wonderful. Just, we don't normally start and get into backstory, but there's a couple of things in there I want to sort of poke into. Firstly, I'm actually from Perth, oh, so that, that hits home nicely for me. And the other thing I was going to say was Perth and San Diego are like sister cities, in my opinion. They're so similar. And anyone who lives in Perth is like, there's no place like Perth. I'm like, go to San Diego. Other than the guns, there's a lot of similarities between those places, in my opinion. And then also the thing I actually want to ask before we jump into energy systems is rushed over that, but it sounds like you've come out of kind of a energy 1.0, oil and gas maybe, or large energy infrastructure. Can you just give me a bit more of that backstory? Because I think that context is going to be interesting later on. Yeah, absolutely. My training was actually environmental science. And I spent many years cleaning up oil and gas well sites, particularly throughout uh, Canada. And then actually Iraq, we're supporting the oil and gas industry to move into the region after the Gulf War period. But I spent a lot of years supporting major players like Woodside in Australia, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, develop their assets ranging from major LNG facilities to nodding donkey, pumping well sites and everything in between. And so I've definitely seen the first, or I suppose the original generation, the traditional generation of energy. And it's not going away anytime soon. I think we all need to be very cognizant of that. We're in a transition stroke transformation and oil and gas is still going to be massively critical to our lives. And so if we can do it smarter and cleaner and better and continue to drive profitable outcomes, that's incredible. And it'll only fuel the energy transition in a more organic way. Yeah. Okay, cool. That context is useful. And I do have some follow-on, but I want to come back to them later. So why don't we just start with, you're now in San Diego and focused, I would say, on the US market, 50 states and quite a lot. Is it really the US or is it a subset of that just so we're in the zone? Because I'll ask some more questions on that. Actually, we're both in our target market. So North America and Australia are certainly the focal points for us right now. Primarily in Australia, it's around the mining and oil and gas sectors. 
mining in particular because we believe that the energy transition can only happen with a resource transition. Right. And so mining companies are coming under a huge amount of pressure from capital markets, from stakeholder groups, social impact settings to be able to develop their mine sites in a more responsible way. So it's a really good opportunity for us. Yeah. Okay. That's super useful to know because I think going into that, I kind of want to understand what that looks like today. And you can use Australia as a microcosm, you could use North America. But when we talk about the state of energy in business, it's kind of my opening salvo on this. I think we need to be a little more narrow in some of our definitions. What types of energy are we talking about for what types of businesses? And then we'll go deep. Yeah. So the traditional process for businesses globally, traditionally, is to connect to the grid. And the way the system operates today is we have utility providers or who generate energy at a central facility, a big nuclear, coal, gas, solar, wind facility. And then they send it to us through huge transmission lines, then to distribution, and then to our homes or businesses. And through that system, it served us really well for the last 100 years. But we are passive consumers of energy. We don't know where it comes from, even when we'll bit how much we should pay for it. And we're at the mercy of these monopolistic bodies, setting the rate structure, controlling how we would get our energy. And what's changing is the ability for us to influence that. So now businesses around the world can actually generate their own energy on site through solar, through storage. They can use fuel cells, gas generators, wind turbines. They can store it through battery storage and others. And so they can really start taking control of their own destiny. I'm managing the three core variables that impact both energy and business, which is affordability, resilience, and how clean it is. And so they're typically the three drivers that people think about. Yep. And the reason why this is becoming important is because the central grid, as we where we get our energy from today, is becoming increasingly expensive. I'm sure you're feeling it on your bill at a personal level, scale out to a business setting, and we're seeing rate escalations of anywhere between 5 and 40% year on year. Just for the grid access aspect. And for, yeah, the wholesale energy that you get, right. most utility providers, they typically can't mark that up, but they're charging for, yeah, the delivery of that energy, let alone the cost of energy going up in general because of conflict, supply chain issues. Sure. So we're seeing costs going through the roof and trying to manage a business where you've got this hugely variable impact on your business is extremely hard. We're seeing reliability going down. I know both in Australia and the US we're facing very similar challenges, aging grid infrastructure, changing weather events, impacting the infrastructure. And so all these are leading to power outages, which impact our ability to run our businesses as efficiently and effectively as we want. Mm -hmm. And this can be really costly. Like in the US, businesses lose about $150 billion per year as a result of power outages. Just the power, just the power going out, like not yeah, just exactly. the cost problem. It's just, hey, the power's not on, we can't produce the widget, so no one come into work today. Exactly. Downtime, lost products, particularly we support food and beverage businesses. They got a lot of perishable goods. Mm. They can't afford to lose power because then they lose refrigeration, then they lose product mm. on the manufacturing and oil and gas side. Some of these businesses can take them weeks to come back online. So it's not just I've lost the power for 12 hours. It's I've lost the power for 12 hours. And now I need to spend the next three weeks bringing the whole facility back up, up yeah. to where it used to be. And there's obviously safety issues associated with these things as well, both from a human perspective, as well as from some of these oil and gas facilities, mining facilities. Without power, they 
you have to do a lot of things to manage the risk associated with then starting to flare gas or manage um, processes that require the energy to be operating. So yeah, it was quite a critical issue. Yeah, I, I still want to narrow down just here, just to be, because we've talked about, I mean, business is such a broad term. It could be anything from a large mining concern down to a bakery on the corner. When you're talking about business in this context, like give me a size, a sense of the either the typical industry or the scale of this business, either in terms of its number of staff or its revenue or energy consumption. Like what are we talking about here? It's interesting you've actually covered the gamut because the way we think about it is our approach is very scalable. So we work from the mine site that needs a fully islanded, what we call microgrid solution. So they can be in the middle of the desert running on their own energy mm. can be 10, 20, 50 million, $100 million asset right. for their entire mine site down to the local microbrewery on your corner. As long as they've got real estate space where they can put solar or storage, they're also suitable candidates. But ideally, it's global enterprises with a portfolio of projects around the world yep. over a set business objective of a mission reduction target, right. or they're facing one of those pain points we're talking about of cost or resilience. Yep. That's the perfect customer profile is we need to achieve something. We've got a pain point. We've got lots of sites around the world. Where do we start? What's possible? Who do we turn to? You know, that's the complexity that we're... Yeah. And what I'm trying to understand is like, when you walk into your home in the morning and it's cold, like I was this morning, and you turn the heater on, you think, oh, well, that's, that's energy. And like, that's your view of energy. I think it's so easy to miss the wood for the trees on this. That type of residential household energy is such a, is a big part, but is still not the majority of where energy gets spent and used in our society generally. When you're talking about the medium to large to multinational scale businesses and the energy they consume, like what portion of the overall energy footprint are we talking about, or even if just in North America or generally? Yeah, so for a mine site, as an example, in Australia where you are, up to 40% of their operating costs can be energy related. So these right. are outside of humans running these facilities and an input to their facility, whether it's a, a mineral or, yeah, right. or energy is up yep. there in the top few costs to a business. Yeah. And then in terms of the amount of energy that we globally consume, do you have a sense of this type of business and the amount of energy, the footprint? Like people say cars are 17% of the energy we consume are the cars on the road. Like big business and medium, even medium scale businesses that could be energy independent, I think it's a term we're going to talk about later. They're a big part of the overall energy mix, I'm presuming. Yeah, huge. I can't give you the exact stats, but certainly... I don't know anyone would know it. <laughs> yeah, the commercial industrial businesses we're uh, supporting mm. is the majority of our energy consumption globally. Yeah. Especially when you start looking at the mineral processing, oil and gas, these heavy industries, manufacturing, they are the biggest consumers. And I think the reason I bring it up as well is that, and we hear this a lot in Australia where the reason we need certain types of energy production, coal and baseload power is something, a term that you hear quite a lot, it's because we can't run our industries without this power. And a lot of what I'm reading between the lines here, and we'll dive into this a bit more, is that's not necessarily true. There's a full spectrum of technologies. And yes, we may need to lean on gas or whatever in the short term. But ultimately, these large multinationals are going to look for an edge in regards to cost and resilience. And the third one was the third one, cost, resilience and emission. Yeah. And so ultimately, they're going to vote with their feet to be able to solve those problems. And they have a set of pressures. So in some respects, these large companies, even if they're not multinationals, kind of have a unique set of challenges, which they have a set of stakeholders 
that need them to reduce their emissions. They're bound by that. Even their cost of capital is probably in some way tied to that, I'm guessing. And they're also massively impacted. If, I've, if we have a power outage here, it's a problem, but it, my, my personal income doesn't suffer. I still get paid. But <laughs> so let me help understand a little bit more about this kind of this idea of being energy independent, because I think that sounds like the nirvana that you're ultimately aiming for for these businesses. Is that I've understood that I'm jumping ahead a bit, but no, absolutely. The way we operate today is centralized systems are easier to design and build, but they've also got lots of vulnerabilities, points of failure, and you lose a huge amount of efficiency in the system and you spend a huge amount of energy generating energy and then you start losing it as it's being converted into that electricity, transmitted, and what you end up getting at the end point. You've lost 10, 20, 30 plus percent of that energy generation. Right. The theory being is a more distributed energy system where you're generating and storing energy where it's needed in an interconnected way. You now become you now can control loads, you can be more flexible, you can be more agile. Different producers can share it, sell it, transact it in between each other. So you're not reliant on one individual entity on one asset that could go down or one transmission line. You're now creating this more resilient infrastructure that can almost self-heal, self-regulate. We become prosumers of energy. What's a prosumer? Sorry, as in a producer and a consumer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the technology prices and efficiency gains that we've achieved over the last five or 10 years have made these systems more affordable, more accessible, more amenable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm definitely reading into this, and I know in some of reading up on the material that you've got beforehand, moving from centralized to decentralized sounds like every kind of Web3 Nirvana as well. I'm not, that's the second time I've used Nirvana in this. I don't normally use that word. Mm Uh, <laughs> but I guess where I wanted to go with this was, is what happens when someone achieves in, like an energy independence in that they have an ability to create or generate and store the energy that they're going to use in all but the most extenuating of circumstances, three weeks of winter in the middle of summer kind of thing. And so you'll end up in a situation where they are largely self-sufficient and may have the ability to actually export stuff back to a grid. What I'm trying to understand is, there's a kind of, they can be an island, I think, to use your term before, but there's also an opportunity for them to take part in the larger network. Where does the knowledge come as to what they might be doing beyond that network? Like, how do those individual islands know what to be doing? And like, where are those controls? Is it a system or a network level thing? Is it a protocol thing? Like, where is that all going? Yeah, so in, so I'll talk about today and then I'll talk about where we'll go in the future. Sure. Today, that's the complexity for customers is... There's lots of different technologies to choose from, whether it's solar storage, gas, wind, diesel. Like, What configuration of those solutions do you need at your facility to meet your energy consumption profile? How much should you be producing? Should you overproduce to then use in the market to be compensated by the utility operator? And the utilities make it extremely complex purposefully (laughs) through their rate cases, such that they almost, in a lot of cases, disincentivize this behavior. The future will be the utilities will more become just distribution operators or what I would expect is the traditional model will be replaced by the next generation of data experts, the leading companies that you can think of off the top of your head, the Googles of the world. They'll be the ones who know what to do with data, how to make it accessible, how to create easy to use apps. And the future will be someone will manage the poles and wires and support us to be able to move the energy around 
but it'll all be digitalized in terms of how we do that. It'll probably be blockchain technologies to facilitate transactions yeah. and there'll be probably storage built into all our appliances throughout our homes and businesses where you can store energy, run offline. You can turn the appliance off when your partners within the distribution grid need you to. So it becomes this kind of continuously, you're constantly refining the load to match the demand because what most people don't realize about energy is the system always has to be in perfect balance. Yeah, yeah. And so you can't suddenly need a bunch of energy and bring new generation online immediately without being able to manage the consumption. So you need this flexible living entity to be able to really manage the system. Yeah. And the reason why I'm laughing a little bit on that is like for about the last 20 years, we've been sold this idea of a fridge that will order milk when we're out of milk. Yeah, yeah. It's completely technically possible and no one wants that fridge. That fridge doesn't exist. It doesn't work. No one cares. Maybe it'll turn up, but the idea that we have a fridge that says I'm I'm on the grid and I actually am going to store some of this energy, use it myself if there's a problem and then sell it back does feel like a thing that you wouldn't know your fridge was doing, but you'd be like, my fridge keeps making me money. I can't work out why that is. Exactly. How cool would that be? <laughs> that would be an amazing outcome. Sorry, and even being able to, you know, you know, I love thinking about how can we build community around this? How can you donate your overconsumed energy or your fridge playing the market for you to your local charity or your parents who maybe can't afford the system. You know? So how do you really build that self-sustaining community mm. and those that can afford and can overproduce yep. can also share with those that maybe aren't as privileged. Yeah. So that's the real opportunity. And I'm interested in kind of the stages here, but I want to come back to where you guys are today because there's something in the kind of the paradigm when you operate as a large business or as a multinational that the lay consumer kind of has working, but not on the same scale, which is you can drive the energy investment decisions and infrastructure decisions because you're such a big potential customer, right? So I'm a massive mine site. I'm Fortescue Metals. I've got huge mine sites out there. I've got investors and ESG lenses telling me I need to reduce my footprint. My diesel bill's huge anyway in a very sunny location. So clearly it makes sense to do something. And so in that context, they're able to actually influence where things are built and how they're built is it in, in your world, is it being built for them or is it a bit of infrastructure that they're agreeing to, to buy from for 20 years? Like how is this thing actually mechanically working? Yeah. So I'd say there's a few things that have happened. I'd say largely the corporations today, they're saying we're now net zero or we've reduced our emissions. They're buying what are called virtual power purchase agreements. So someone builds a large solar farm or wind farm and that they sell you that energy. You don't necessarily consume that energy, but contractually, you're buying it. Right. And so they're able to then hit the easy button and say, we're now net carbon neutral. We don't consume any dirty power. Right. When in reality, they could be using power from the grid or from their diesel gensets on site, and they're just offsetting it. Right. So that, that's one mechanism. By the way, is that mechanism better than not doing it, but really not a solution? Is that kind of way I'm... It's got its pros in the sense that you're creating net new renewable energy projects, which is awesome. Right. The problem for businesses is one, you get no resilience with that solution. So tree falls on the transmission line, you still lose your power. And okay. secondly, people, businesses are now being called out for greenwashing because sure. they know that the business isn't they're not solving it themselves. They're just almost using a contractual mechanism. For yeah, them. yeah. Yep. So that, I'd cool. say that's the first thing. And I'd say the second thing is 
corporations are, some of them are saying, let's just wait for our utility to solve this. Mm-hmm. And what they do not realize is that because of red tape, because of permits, because of regulations, because of not in my backyard mentality, these projects are now taking five, eight, 10, 15 plus years to develop. So if you want to wait for a new big energy project to come online, you're waiting an awfully long time. And meanwhile, your energy costs are going up, your resilience is going down, your emission profile isn't changing. And so it's just not a solution. And so that's what's driving businesses to think about how can I gain all these advantages and do it cost effectively and get a return on best my investment. And but just getting down to the mechanics of how this actually works, Fortescue, I'm just using them because they're a large miner in Australia who I think are tackling or trying to tackle a bunch of this at the moment. They in, invest and in basically buy the infrastructure and run the infrastructure themselves, or they're typically saying, I do want to I want this to exist. I'll agree to buy from it, but someone else says, I'll tender for that and I'll build it and manage it for you. So you don't have to get into the energy business. You just yep. need to choose which one of the options is the best option. Is that what's happening? Yeah. So for onsite energy systems, there's multiple options, but either companies self-finance and they build it, they contract someone to build it, but then they finance it, own it, operate it. Yep. Or on the other side of the fence, we have what's called energy as a service contracts. So <laughs> someone comes in, they want to own it, they want to finance it, they want to build it, they want to operate it, and they just sell you energy at a fixed rate for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years, however yep. long you want to contract for. Mm-hmm. And we see that being a really attractive option for people because to your point, most businesses want to specialize on their mining activities. They don't want to be an energy expert and they can outsource that. It becomes an operational cost versus a capital cost. And there's lots of benefits of that. With some of these global incentives available, Europe, US, Australia, there are benefits to self-financing in the form of tax credits. So for businesses who do carry some tax burdens, there are now some very attractive mechanisms to take advantage of. And that's why I think we'll see maybe some businesses start to explore this more. Mm. And the reality is most businesses are used to buying and selling commodities. And I think people are starting to become more comfortable with the fact that instead of just mining an asset, can now mine energy and I can sell it to the market and I can play that game. And so it's just a slightly different construct, but business mechanics of it are very similar. Mm. In some respects, like I think about I was a very small owner, part owner in a record store in San Francisco, but we also had coffee in the morning and we ran events, which we sold, leased a venue out. And we also ran it as a record shop and, and had it, ran bar nights as well. And we got a lot of utility out of the asset that we had, which was a two grand a month lease in a pretty challenging part of San Francisco. I think, by the way, it was near the Tenderloin and Knob Hill and for some reason, it was coined Tender Knob, which I think is probably the, <laughs> the, worst, the funniest and worst and interesting name for a, for a place. But anyway, the point being is that I think if you're a business and you already have a large amount of asset, one of which is the amount of space that you have because you're a large manufacturer or logistics company and you're not leveraging it to at least solve your own problem or maybe even monetize it in a way that's relatively straightforward, the infrastructure itself is relatively complex, perhaps becoming more mature in terms of the ability to set up an energy plant and a storage and put the two things together and put an inverter in and hey presto you're generating energy and i think in the end the end of the day you're developing a commodity right so if you if you have excess energy then there'll always be a market for it in most cases and your ability to sell it is to find someone who's connected to the grid that you're connected to one of the questions i've got before we dump into 
a bit about how Vector's actually tackling this problem right now and then where you guys are headed as well. And you sort of touched on it before. I'm curious as to the role or potentially the challenge that we're faced with regards to the fact that there is still a reliance on some form of a grid, even if we're trying to distribute it and decentralize it somewhat. And is there a risk here that grids that are not opened and available and maybe even regulated to the point where they have to be made available, even if they're privately owned or the fact that they're privately owned, how much of this is a problem potentially for a lot of what we're trying to do here, broadly speaking? Yeah, it's actually a huge problem. I'd say from a few perspectives, one is from a fundamentals of the more businesses that defect from the grid or buy less energy from the grid, then people who are generating and transmitting that energy across a populace, they set a case for that and they charge us all a rate based on their capital expenditures. The more people that leave that and don't pay into it, those costs are never going down because the infrastructure is aging. It's got to be replaced, maintained, operated. Those costs get spread across fewer people, so their rates go up. So that's a major issue that needs to be countered. Secondly, the utilities that don't embrace it and block it, they're just creating, they're pushing the can down the road and then sure. that really kicks in heavily at some point. And so unfortunately, the people who can't necessarily afford to leave are left holding the bag. So we've got to have a problem or a solution for that. And secondly, I'd say, because the infrastructure today is so limited, being able to interconnect to the grid becomes a real pain point. And that's what mm. projects so long because the grid infrastructure just can't handle all these new assets coming online, even though it's good the for people on the network. Exactly. <laughs> it's better for everyone. It's just, and this is a big problem with EVs coming online because for each electric vehicle, brought online, it's equivalent of a new household's worth of energy consumption. Mm. And so you can imagine as we're all trying to plug in these, this charging infrastructure, the strain on the grid is going to be huge. Mm. And it certainly isn't designed for the bi-directional flows are proposed to be the future state of being able to use your car for not only driving, but also for storing energy, pushing it back into the grid when the grid needs it. The infrastructure yeah. just isn't designed for that. At all. Yeah, I've reminded a little bit of the way the banking system works, you've got a thing called, that's again, aging infrastructure called the SWIFT network and all yeah. of the banks are all party to this and it allows them to basically move money around. But when you send me money and I send someone else money and they send you money, there isn't three lots of money moving. There is simply just a netting out of, well, this is the net outcome of those three transactions all having happened and therefore we only need to move the incremental or the, the delta on all of that. And I wonder whether energy ultimately is going to end up in the same place where what we actually want is as many people self-generating as possible and self-storing as possible. So we need to move the least amount possible, but to right. be as connected as possible. So when we do need to move, we can handle those moves and we can get energy to where it needs to be. And that just in a nutshell sounds very challenging to make work when you've got a private enterprise who says we will benefit if we can charge everyone a fixed dollar amount to be on the network. And we don't actually want that much energy moving around necessarily, or we don't. we want to make it hard for people to connect or hard for them to leave. Yeah, yeah I, or in the case of the U, like here we have in the US. actually regulated monopolistic utilities, which is even more of a problem mm. because they can actively block the whole transition in favor of their business model. Yeah, yeah, that feels like a massive challenge. All right, well, let's park that for the moment. I don't know that we'll solve that in our <laughs> show today. <laughs> There's people certainly smarter than me working on it. I'm not sure about you. I'm not going to make that. But I want to understand a little bit more about 
where Vector sits today in terms of the services that you guys are offering in the context now that we understand a little bit more about business and how they might procure energy? Like what are the businesses doing or not doing today? And then specifically, what are you guys enabling for them? So the problem statement for businesses is we know we want to do something, but we don't know what's possible, where to begin or who to turn to. And really there's two incumbent solutions for them. One, they either go to their traditional management consultant that they've used for strategy and other things, and they pay a huge amount of money and they get a glossy report, but then they still don't necessarily know what to do with it. And it's a fixed solution in that moment. It's not this living, breathing solution that needs to transition over the next few decades. Or they get sold to by a supplier in the market who wants to sell them their widget or their service, buy my solar panel, buy my battery. And you as Vincent, you've been bombarded by multiple people trying to sell you a solution, but who do you trust? Why is one better than the other? And so you end up becoming a bit nervous. You don't know who to trust. That leads to indecision, which then leads to inaction. It feels complex. It feels hard. And so what we're really supporting business leaders around the world to do is, first of all, baseline, where are they at today? Most businesses, she interestingly, don't even know how much energy they're consuming, where they're consuming it, what's it costing them, what's their emission profile. So how are you operating your business today? And then we help them prioritize where they get the greatest return on investment for developing solutions like what we've been discussing. So we help them technically and financially configure the optimal combination of technologies, how they should work together, what their return on investment would be, what their payback would be, what their emission reduction profile, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then what we really excel in is we've built a marketplace of thousands of suppliers because we've got all the capabilities in the world in terms of technology, construction, capital. All three of those things exist in the market. Don't know how to get access to projects in a really efficient way. Mm. Once we've supported the business to essentially agree to the opportunity, we help them take it to market in a really competitive, transparent, and vibrant marketplace. And the suppliers get access to it. They can compete for that work and then ultimately finance, build, own, operate, whatever the, whatever the right structure yeah, exactly. is. And that's what's super exciting is the suppliers love it because now they don't face all that customer indecision yeah, and yeah. work and trying to convince someone. Customers like it because they've got an independent entity representing their best interests. We're completely solution agnostic. So we look at all available options for them. Yeah. And so we just we want to make sure that they're in control of the process, that they're making the right decisions, they've got data, they've got the dashboard to socialize it internally, get the right executive buy-in get the right sign-offs, and then facilitate all that. So it'd be the equivalent of you using your Expedia to buy your holiday. You don't have to be a <laughs> holiday expert. You don't have to know all the airlines, all the rental car companies, all the hotels. You sure. just get a, here's my three options, sort of cheapest, my recommended, premium, and then you get to select. And so it's all about simplifying and accelerating the process for businesses and making them feel really comfortable about mm. making it. Yeah, and just in terms of some of the mechanics from this, so just for some context where this question is coming from. So I've spent a fair bit of time working in and around mortgage broking, predominantly in Australia, and it is, I would say, unnecessarily complex in Australia. It doesn't need to be this complex, but it is. And it's complex because you've got 20 or 30, in our case, banks who have a different view on how to interpret and look at someone's data. And to solve that problem, you can't simply just throw technology at it. We we do throw technology at it to get better at running the calculations and sifting through all the options and 
cutting out the ones that won't meet or won't get approved or whatever the thing is. But ultimately, there's still a human who's having to make a decision. So I'm curious in terms of this as a parallel, the technology is doing a bunch of the heavy lifting, but you have a decision maker, typically probably a CFO slash CEO or even board who are maybe not in this every day. So they don't understand what they don't understand. They don't know what they don't know kind of thing. And then you have someone on the other side who's like, I can deliver it, just tell me what you need. And I guess my question is in terms of a service delivery model, is it platform plus people? Are you joined at the hip, but also there's a human there who's trying to help navigate this with the human on the other side of the equation? Certainly today, because it's a new market, it's new for a lot of people. As you say, our buyers are typically non-technical experts. They don't know the energy sector. They're making a multi-million dollar purchase. So it's 95% technology with then some white glove service to give them, to hold the hand, take them on the journey, make them feel really comfortable, ensure they get the best outcomes, provide a sounding board. The technology's designed to be completely self-guided. Mm. But we just know based on the maturity of the market and the customer needs that there just needs to be some degree of that personal interaction today. I'd imagine with time that'll phase out. But yeah, that's the reality. Yeah, because you you sort of said something before that was interesting to me, which was right up front, even before we hit the record button, we're talking about this idea that, and we use this word transition, but we're on a journey generally. And so the thing that's right for you right now as a business is based on where you are today and what you can achieve or what you can finance or what you can get approved and whatever. And so this is a moving target in and of itself. And so the first time you do it, sure, you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand anything about energy. But your kind of model here isn't a kind of a matching model. Like you bought your flight, that's the end of it. You got an account, you can log back in. It's actually about understanding your energy usage on an ongoing basis and therefore helping you to evolve how you might continue to tackle this problem in the future. Have I got that right? Yeah, spot on. So being able to monitor the asset, making sure that you get what you paid for. Mm. And then to your point, maybe two years from now, the cost of batteries reduces by another 25% and you should Mm. upgrade the system to get even more benefits. Or now a project in pencil a few years ago actually now makes huge business sense because the utility rates changed. So in else actively, we talk about providing actionable intelligence to our customers. And that's what it's about in a real-time basis. How do you support them to make those really informed decisions based on Actionable intelligence. Actionable intelligence reads the smart decisions, which then draws really high quality suppliers into the market vying for your work, which means you get better solutions at prices, which then makes you want to develop more projects. So it becomes this real sort of self-fulfilling cycle and across a global portfolio of assets or even a regional portfolio, the supplier who builds your solution Perth is not going to be the same one that probably builds it in Sydney. And so for a lot of businesses, even knowing who to trust, who to turn to, who's the best partner. So we do all that pre-qualification, the vetting, making sure that the suppliers are receiving the bid specs in such a way that they can put a bit of their secret sauce onto the solution, but they're all bidding against the same criteria. So you get apples to apples bids back and you're not Mm -hmm. comparing completely different solutions. We already have helped you understand what is the optimal solution for your business technically and financially. Yeah, yeah. It's, fa- it's in every marketplace model kind of has this battle. And I'm curious in, in terms of how you've solved slash probably still solving, as you said, there's thousands of potential suppliers or sometimes you might need two or three suppliers working together. You've got to start with the supply side. You've got to have things available to sell. In Just in terms of the North American context even, How have you managed to solve that challenge? How have you managed to make this attractive to a supplier before the customers are yet to show up kind of thing? 
Yeah, definitely. There's always that chicken and the egg, isn't there? I'd say in this market, for sure, the hard side of the market is the demand side, so the customer with the energy need. Mm. And so our strategy is to support those customers to originate high quality projects, which then attracts the suppliers. In order to get the initial flywheel going, we've got, based on a huge amount of experience and project deployment expertise, we know who the right suppliers are in the right markets. And so we've onboarded over 4,000 suppliers today. So we've got a minimum criteria of suppliers that cover the full breadth and depth yeah, of yeah. we need to offer. But we're, we're not onboarding every supplier on the planet yeah. at this stage. I think at some point they can self-guide, self-onboard. It'll all be sort of social performance-based. Who's done a good job? How did they do it? What's their project experience? What, how long have they been around? All that criteria will be captured. Mm. Today, we've made sure we br- bring on the leading global suppliers rating from the Siemens and the Caterpillars down to the local developer in California and Western Australia. So yeah, try to get a nice cross-section. Yeah. And one other thing that was curious to me, because I think it's all very well running the report up front saying, here's what you're doing. Go out and getting the bids and saying, here's the thing. All right, choose this one. Great, it's implemented. And you, what you're saying is that you're getting line of sight to how that thing performs once implemented. And that's, I guess, part of the model there. So that you're saying to the suppliers, hey, when you implement this thing, by the way, we're going to, you need to make sure that the smart monitoring, which is obviously part of it because it's everywhere, where you're feeding that data back to us because we will continue to monitor this site on behalf of the customer so that we can demonstrate that they're doing, you're doing an amazing job, but also power the next set of gener- decisions for you and for the customer. Is that kind of the quid pro quo? Yeah, we actually have access to our monitoring hardware opportunities. And the reason being is, mm. Even within a supplier, they may use a different brand of inverter at different projects. And even they themselves have a problem. They have to log into an ABP platform, a Siemens, right. a Schneider platform to get the data. And so we've got the ability to aggregate all that data regardless of the technology type and mm. ensure that the actual real performance is being monitored, not just the data that the supplier wants to tell you about. And sure. then to your point, then we can feed that back into the analysis at the front end, as well as when suppliers in our market are bidding for work, it's their confidential information, but we can aggregate it across a market and then use that to also inform how much would a project typically cost? What are the market signals that customers should be thinking about? And really just driving that intelligent, intelligence act, intelligence yeah. people can act on. Yeah. And I want to get to something about where we are today and what's changed. And because in theory, a lot of the technologies that we're talking about could to enable someone to go and put in their requirements, understand what they're spending today and understand where their energy mix is today and then find a better option. This isn't necessarily new technology as an idea. You're obviously bringing it together at a moment in time. Why is now this moment in time? Like what's happening right now or has been happening the last few years that has made this an absolute imperative? And I'm thinking about it from a market dynamic perspective, but I'm also interested, especially in the North American context, some of the regulatory kind of things that are here and now that are like, if you don't move on this now, you're missing the wood for the trees. Like you should absolutely be thinking about this right now. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'd say in terms of the technology themselves, just as a few highlights, both solar and storage have come down in price by over 80% in the last 10 years. Mm. So the actual infrastructure itself has become way more accessible. Micro gas turbines, Lots of new technologies, obviously EVs coming online. I've got a lot of customers thinking about how they, can they electrify their fleets to do they need access to more energy. They don't want to be spending more through the utility. So there's all these driving factors in terms of 
the immediate market dynamics. I'd say also in the past, people were just operating on spreadsheets and you're considering hundreds of thousands of variables to design one of these systems and spreadsheets mm. just don't cut it. You've yeah. now got the optimization technologies to look at these solutions at scale. Mm. I'd say the utilities have brought in business models for the most part that facilitate and support this. And I'd say the last comment is around now global incentives are really starting to accelerate the deployment of these systems. So the Green Deal in Europe, the Inflation Reduction Act here in the US, we're talking about trillions of dollars worth of investment going into the sectors mm-hmm. and really providing huge incentives for businesses to think about what their options are. Almost at minimum here, you can be thinking about a 30% tax incentive for a project that you deploy. So when wow. you're going to get one in $3 back on your investment. That's pretty amazing when you're already able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in energy costs alone and gain resilience and reduce your emissions and market it to your customers, to your stakeholders, to the cattle markets. So yeah. you start stacking these benefits and it becomes a massive win. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a fascinating time for you guys to be involved in doing that. Probably just a kind of closing question for me, just on on where Vector's up to. There's so many of the the timing, I think, has never been better for what you're trying to do or what you are doing. What are the things that are right in front of you at the moment in terms of getting from zero to one or one to 10 in terms of your growth generally or specifically? Yeah, super exciting times. I think especially for the Australian listeners, we one of our initial investors is Worley. So a very big public brand there, Worley Parsons, now mm-hmm. Worley. So they invested in us because they saw that we were automating a lot of the manual service-led industry practices as well as being able to support the deployment of these systems at scale, backed by the largest energy engineering firm in the world. And then we've got some of the leading clean tech investors, such as Volaworth and the Tech Squared Ventures. And we actually just brought on a new board member through one of our investments, a guy called Bill Nusi. He's a super experienced tech executive himself. And then he mm-hmm. spent many years writing a book called Freeing Energy. So he's got a book and a podcast and has become an expert in this industry. And so we're constantly positioning ourselves to be surrounded by people who know how to grow big businesses, understand the market, know how to scale technology, especially disrupting incumbent industries. And our vision is to be the platform that every business leader in the world thinks about when they're thinking about their energy transition. So that's the journey we're on. You know, we're almost four years into it. We've written some really crazy cycles with COVID, recessionary talks. And so we're definitely proving ourselves under some really extenuating circumstances. But this is what it's about. It's super exciting, huge opportunity for the market. The business leaders that embrace the energy transition today will truly differentiate their businesses for the decades to come. Yeah. And so we want to support them to do that at scale in a really simple, affordable, streamlined way. And that's what motivates us every day. Yeah, wonderful. All right, well, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. And um, yeah, I'm super excited to see where you go with it. I think I didn't know enough about it coming into it and I read as much as I could, but hearing what you're talking about today has really illuminated a hell of a lot more for me, hopefully for a lot of other people listening to as well. And yeah, look forward to seeing some stream of epic updates from you in the near future. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change the system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click subscribe so that you get the new episode.
Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. Connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.